one and we are live. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Zek Hub podcast. Today, I have with me Amber Balde from the Zcash Foundation board and also founded a startup. I'm going to butcher the pronunciation. I believe it's Clovier is the pronunciation. Just Clover. Clover. Cool. I, I knew I would mess yeah. that up, but awesome. So CEO of Clover, and we're here today to talk around a number of different topics. Want to put out a disclaimer. Amber is on the board of the Zcash Foundation. I'm an employee at Electric Coin Company both recipients of the Zcash Development Fund. This, for this conversation, these will be our own personal opinions and not of the opinions of those of the organizations that we're associated with. So Amber, is that a good disclaimer to, to start off with? Sounds great to me. Cool. Awesome. So I'm really excited for this conversation. We connected, I think, a few months ago. Um, David, David from Zcash Media connected us and really wanted to talk about like a specific topic because there was a there was a conversation at the last Zcon from from a few months ago called the Zcash Town Hall, and there was some some debates in there. Uh, one of the debates was on you know Zcash is this like is it a public good? Is it what's what's the relevance of like the price of Zec within the community? So there was an interesting conversation around that which we want to get to, um, and we also just want to talk about you know privacy as a tool for empowerment and these these decentralized systems and how we can provide more access to people across the globe. So. I'm super excited for this. Um, a good way to start, I think, usually is just to provide background for people that might not be familiar with you and what you've done over the last few years. Um, so I think that's a good way to start. And then we can dive into like the various topics that we're super excited to talk about today. Sure. Um, I guess the extremely short TLDR uh, would be that I've worked in some aspect of uh, both technology and finance for my entire career, which is going back too far at this point. Um, I used to build a lot of trading software and also worked at a um, weird kind of small little research boutique that did a lot of equity research um, back in the day uh, in order to make short sell recommendations. So I kind of entered the market from a contrarian standpoint, and I've always been pretty skeptical of pretty much everything. That's kind of how yeah. I roll. Um, and uh, that's kind of informed my career over the time. Um, at the same time, like in my free time, I was doing uh, weird, fun stuff when the internet was small and uh, connected with a bunch of um, interesting people like Zuko through uh, information security uh, meetups and conferences uh, ages ago. Um, so I knew him long before Zcash was a thing. Uh, but, at, you know, when I was working at JP Morgan, um, I ended up uh, in an innovation group and helping them build out um, some of their blockchain and other, you know, related technology kind of projects. Uh, and also at that time was able to kind of connect with Zcash and bring them in to do the first implementation of a zero knowledge circuit on top of um, what at that time was a, a private implementation of an Ethereum network. Um, I left in, I don't know, 2018 or something at this point uh, mm -hmm. to found Clover. And uh, what we focus on there is um, helping make the deployment and running of uh, self-hosted applications easier for people um, and teams. So it's not only about uh, crypto or cryptocurrency or financial services or um, Web3 or anything like that. It's, uh, you know, we have a thesis about decentralization and privacy being um, a many pronged kind of beast and that helping people make alternatives to uh, expensive and data-hungry SaaS applications is um, one of the most important things we can do to increase the general privacy posture of regular people and businesses. I think that's a, that's a really interesting point. So looking past potentially a lot of like 
even within crypto, a lot of the financial aspect of it is pure speculation at this point. So building applications that are, you know, really helping the general public win some of their sovereignty and some of their privacy back. I think that's a really interesting approach. You mentioned there, and, and correct me if I'm, if I'm using the wrong terms, but it was skeptical and contrarian, which is something I would really identify with as well, like very skeptical of a lot of different systems that are a part of our world today. And that leads to some form of what the general public will view as contrarian views. But I'm, I'm just curious on your perspective, like let's break this down to like the beginning kind of genesis of the ethos of cryptocurrencies and decentralized systems. Like why decentralization? Like why are we here? Because a lot of different communities have different you know, opinions towards decentralization, right? Like a lot of, let's say the Bitcoin maxi types, it's like the, it's like the doctrine, the religion that they die, die by. But then you have in the Cosmos ecosystem, maybe I'm not saying that Cosmos doesn't focus on decentralization, but there's less, I would say it's less of a priority due to the amount of validators that they have within their, you know, specific um, networks. So like why decentralization and why are we even here? Like, why are we building these systems? Um, sure. Well, I, it's obviously a very sticky topic. Um, I think that uh, we, it's easy to get bogged down um, in looking at decentralization of specific networks um, okay. when really the the I like to look at it at more of a system level of um, decentralization as kind of an emergent property of the overall system, the overall Internet or overall society. Um, I like to, I frequently remind myself of something Sarah Jamie Lewis said at one point, uh, that the thing we were supposed to be decentralizing is power. And it's easy to just say then, well, money is power and that's why this matters and kind of mic drop and leave it at that, but there's more to it. Um, you know, money can't buy happiness, but, you know, it can buy freedom, peace of mind, access, influence, experiences, um, safety, increasingly privacy, um, and I think that we've seen through the creation of the initial kind of internet of information, the way that it is, is and has been decentralized, regardless of the centralization layers that are on top of it, um, this ability to publish and consume content. And I kind of like lump together in content everything from the some knowledge of all humanity to like TikTok dances. Um, it's all possible. It's all out there. And uh, you know, it's findable and shareable. And that has changed the world, no doubt. Uh, but it has not created the utopia that we initially kind of thought, you know, put the information out there and everyone will become a self-selected autodidact, like generalist, scholar, critical thinker. Like definitely hasn't played out that way. Yeah, definitely not. So, I mean, there's a lot to unpack there, but I think the point is that decentralization doesn't create outcomes. Uh, it creates opportunities. And that's what we're here to do. Um, to make sure that as many people as possible have as much opportunity as possible to create the life and the world that they want to see. Do you think that, kind of going off that there, do you think that these, if you decentralize systems in a way that become more opt-in rather than, you know, you kind of, and maybe I'm like not explaining this the right way, but I think of, you know, as you're, as you're going through your teen years, and going into early adulthood, there are all these different systems that are that are owned by essentially monopolies. So you have your Instagram owned by Facebook, you have Twitter, you have TikTok, et cetera. And these become the de facto places of communication. They become the de facto places where people can potentially be censored, where messages can't get out, et cetera. And that's happening on both sides of the aisle. And we're recently seeing that on Twitter, in my opinion, right now with one side kind of, it's the shift is to one side where it was previously on another. 
And I don't think either of those situations are good. So by and large, do you think this decentralization of, you know, like information providers or systems would create more of an opt-in society where people, when they're going into their early twenties and they're interacting with all these new technologies where they interact with people online, do you think by decentralizing, I would say, you know, the, the systems providers creating more, you know, competition in the market, do you think that then changes the way that people interact with the internet and interact with information? Do you think we get closer to that? utopia of people are able to go into the areas of, you know, scholarly re reading or different ideas of ideologies like political thought, and they can learn more about specific things? Or do you think it still ends up in the same place? Well, I think people are people. And um, I fundamentally um, hope, irrationally hope against hope that most people are, are fundamentally good. And I think mm -hmm. you see that when people, you know, rush to help others in, in times of need. And I try to focus on that and not all of the awful things and awful communication and whatnot that happens uh, on the internet. I think that it's almost uh, impossible at this point to separate out what people um, really think and would like to become from the generalized psyop of the cyber war landscape that we exist in. Mm -hmm. um, and that is a whole separate topic. Yep. Uh, and something we might talk about a little bit later, I think, is the difference between censorship-resistant protocols and applications, which can be very opinionated about um, rule sets for participation. Um, because I... I think that these are two extremely different things. And um, I think it, we have a strong obligation to advocate for complete censorship resistance at a protocol layer, but that um, we need to make sure that different people in different communities who understand their own needs and their own requirements uh, more than any kind of top-down corporation ever will are mm -hmm. able to build the tools that they need and that they want to see. And then I hope that a majority of the people that do so facilitate stuff that is good, but it's not going to be all good. And that is what it is. Um, does that go back to the initial question you were asking? <laughs> I think that actually answered it really well. I think, you know, okay. we're, we're looking to build at the protocol layer censorship resistance, and then local communities can develop the own, their own applications on top of that layer, which will have yeah. opinions. And as you're interacting, as you're, you know, you're coming into this, you know, internet economy and internet society, which is, you know, kind of what the world is today in a large part, in, in some parts of the world, you can go into the applications that rep best represent your community and you can kind of self-select there and then move in that direction. Yeah. And I guess um, the part I missed was the part about like youth culture and Gen mm -hmm. Z and what's coming behind that. And like, I have a seven, almost eight year old at this point. So, you know, I think about this stuff too. Um, I think it's been really encouraging to see the way that people have adopted online uh, pseudonymity and mm -hmm. that it is natural now for um, for especially Gen Z, but younger people to talk about main and alts um, and to understand that there's a difference of identity in different spaces. Um, and also to be really picky about what they post in places. There's certainly like uh, slippery slope stuff about, you know, the psychological damage it's doing about always being on and always being performative. Um, but the flip side of that is, you know, we had a millennial generation of saying, how are you ever going to become a public figure if you posted pictures of yourself, you know, drinking in your teens or in college or something? Um, and now I think people are aware of that up front. They still don't understand and don't embrace that, like, stuff 
probably won't ever go away from the internet, um, but as much as they should, but they are reacting to it. You know, a lot of people, a lot of conversations have moved to um, group messages, whether that's on Signal or iMessage or um, some other smaller app. A lot of groups like you know, friends groups, like hanging out with the fam groups. Um, they don't, those conversations don't happen on Facebook anymore. Yeah. And I think that's a really it's not, good, yeah. it's not a public, yeah, it's not a public town square conversation, yeah. right? If you just want to talk privately, um, people now realize that's a different space. Yeah. A hundred percent. I think that's a really good, really good point because it allows your, it, 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 for me, pseudonymity and anonymity also allow for like complete freedom of expression, right? Because, you know, for example, my main the Twitter account, I have like a couple, but the one I use for my work at ECC, I, I very actively ensure that I do not post any of my political leanings or things that, or even if I post something that has a political leaning, I always say like, I'm not saying that I agree or disagree with any of this because, you know, there is a somewhat of a perception that if I'm posting a political leaning that some people might not agree with, then that could end up, you know, linking my, linking to my employer. And even though if you say it's, you know, my opinion or whatever, people are still going to try to associate your potential political leanings with your employer or things of that nature. So that's why it's good to have these different areas because they allow you, like, group chats with your friends allow for, like, a certain set of expression there. And then you have another account where you can have a certain set of expression there. And I think that's actually a really healthy thing because it allows you to kind of discover more and and sometimes maybe and push boundaries and kind of understand where your opinions and boundaries might lie like personally. And I think that's a really good form of discovery. So I think, I, yeah. I, and, yeah. and it also like enables, um, you know, honesty, hearing things honestly from other people as well. Mm. I sometimes, you know, talk about being a 13 year old girl on the internet <laughs> in the nineties, you know, um, and being on IRC and, and stuff in, in rooms where people definitely did not think I was a 13 year old girl. Um, and you know, today it's probably the opposite of that, right? It's a bunch of like 40 year old guys saying they're 13 year old girls. Um, but I certainly did not, <laughs> I did not disclose that that was what I was. Um, and it's because I wanted to talk to people and have them just talk to me like a person. God, I craved people not responding to me based on how I looked and the preconceived notions that they had about, you know, what I was thinking or what I believed. Um, and that was really formative to me, uh, to be able to, um, be, uh, not just accept, not always accepted, certainly, but to be heard for the content of what I had to say and not just what people saw when they looked at me. So I think anonymity is, is crucial, um, to enable honest communication. No, completely agree there. And then part of that is people are also saying now that these financial applications that we're building anonymity or pseudonymity or whatever is a huge part because it's not necessarily, you know, the business of, you know, the institutions or the governments or the banks to kind of know where you're spending your money. Or for example, they, they don't want people to potentially be censored. For example, if there's a political situation in a certain area of the world, but where I'm living sanctions that specific area, I can't send money via any traditional finance mechanism. So I might turn to something like crypto or a cryptocurrency in order to facilitate that transaction. Earlier, you mentioned that we build censorship resistant protocols, but it's difficult for an organization who has a top-down hierarchical structure to potentially build an application for another locale in the world because we don't truly understand their needs. So let's just, for an example, say an organization based in the United States would have a really difficult time with employees based in the United States would have a really difficult time building an application for someone in sub-Saharan Africa as a payments mechanism because we're not there, we don't understand their needs, and there's only so much data and case studies you can read. 
a lot yeah, of that's the, uh, I like yeah. I like to call that technical colonialism. <laughs> yes, I I would I, yeah I've used that term in public before as well in crypto colonialism because it's a lot of the same. There seems to be um, from my perspective, outsider looking in. I'm not someone who's been in the space for you know you know ten plus years, but coming in a little bit later, I do still still see some of that, and I don't think it's all bad, but I think that it, or it's bad intentioned. I'm just wondering, are we actually getting to this goal of quote unquote economic freedom? So I guess my question here is, you know, crypto is tagged or cryptocurrencies are tagged as these um, technologies that can facilitate economic freedom or or just personal freedom, freedom as together. The quote is crypto is not supposed to make you rich. It's supposed to set you free. Are we on the actual right track in the current state of the market and the current state of development to achieve that goal within the next 10 years? Oh, probably or even not. five. Let's say five, because I think people have short term are thinking in like short term horizons. So five years. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think in general, things are pretty much a mess. So no, um, but it's not just about, you know, markets and things. Uh, I think it's the wider um, global regulatory uh, landscape and everything else. Um, but really, you know, I, I say this because the, the things, the stuff is still very hard to use, right? Especially mm -hmm. systems like Zcash. Um, people still don't necessarily understand why they need it. Uh, the investment focus and crypto scams have completely gutted the reputation of the sector. Um, regulators are responding it to, uh, to it as one big ball of scary risk. Um, Zcash has done a lot to educate regulators over time about the importance of financial privacy, literally as a national security issue. And it yep. does make a difference. Um, but it's really hard to point at this complete circus of what everything looks like right now and say, yeah, and we're the ones who want to make this even harder to track. Right. So I think that um, that is an uphill battle. And it's why um, the, the tool that we have to fight the centralization and chokeholds at on-ramps and off-ramps and access points and exchanges and whatnot is providing um, SDKs, reusable, understandable, easy-to-access libraries, developer environments, turnkey applications akin to BTC Pay plus WordPress, et cetera, that allow people uh, to reduce the technical learning curve to build those applications for themselves in their communities. Um, that's, you know, we have to provide them with the tools and then let them build what they need. But right now, I mean, we're still, there's still plenty of work messing around at the protocol level that's still changing, right? Um, so getting to the point where you have mature looking developer tools for that, that are easy to use, especially to people who are not, you know, classically like university CS grad kind of people. It's a lot, it's a lot of work. And do you think that's one of the areas over like the next five to 10 years that Zcash could focus on? Because I'm seeing that uh, I have a lot of, you know, acquaintances who work in the Bitcoin space full time and they are actively building that. Like let's build, yep. you know, SDKs that make building applications for Bitcoin infinitely easier. And that's like, they're receiving grants from various organizations and that's the, on the only focus that they have. Like, do you think that potentially could be an area where Z, because I don't see that conversation happen a lot. I see it more around like proof of stake or, should we, you know, change the fee mechanism or, you know, how are we going to improve the ECC wallet SDKs or all these different things that are the main conversations um, in the forums or at different, you know, events? I'm not really seeing people actively say, I think I did hear it a, a bit at ZCon, but past that, I'm not hearing people say we need to build 
you know, more friendly SDKs for independent developers? Um, well, it's definitely something I've been saying, like I just said, mm-hmm. but uh, yeah, for it, sure. It's a, no, yeah, it's definitely a topic that um, came up at our last uh, board retreat for the Zcash Foundation, which was during mm-hmm. Zcon, um, as an active goal. Uh, over the next year slash years, um, people are very aware. And I don't think you'll get anybody who says, no, it's a bad idea. It's not about mm-hmm. that. It's about, um, you know, priorities of everything that needs to be mature enough to then be implemented on top of, right? Mm-hmm. So I think that, um, you know, Bitcoin is farther along, more mature and has a larger developer ecosystem and more more people who are doing that. Um, Zcash has a great grant system that, you know, I think, believe there are open grants for a variety of developer tools uh, and we will get there. Um, but it's these are very different. Maybe they're not different conversations, but saying, like, are we heading towards providing people economic agency uh, with what is happening in the macro schema of everything right now is like definitely not. Can we do more to ensure resilience against what might be happening there over time? Absolutely. Um, so we need to be fighting on on both fronts to uh, harm reduce potential negative outcomes and enable workarounds regardless. That's a really good. I think that's a really good perspective. I think and also creating those environments like you mentioned earlier that where people in their local communities can can build things is really important because there are different use cases and different needs for tons of different people throughout the world. My use case for Zcash at this current state is I use it within economies with my friends online and it's easy to send. And I'm also a believer in privacy. So there's a massive personal alignment. Um, and, and it's also good to use privacy tools in the event that your personal situation becomes you know, more dire within the next 10 years. But there are other people, for example, in for, for example, in Venezuela right now that are actually using Zcash to solicit donations for various community programs that they're running right now, because they can't do that via GoFundMe or any other, you know, standard, um, standard crowdfunding tool, because it's more difficult for them. Zcash is easier, right? And I think enabling those specific niche use cases is really important because we've talked about this a little bit. And there were a few different instances within, I think, you know, I would say probably the Western world, Western Europe, United States over the last you know, 14 to 16 months where privacy became more of a hot button issue. And there were a lot, you know, different niche niche use cases that people were kind of associating privacy as a, or a privacy payments tool as a, as a good, um, as a good, you know, application within that use case. Do you think we have a moral responsibility as developers and communicators and advocates of a privacy preserving protocol to actively enable niche use cases or should the focus be on providing tools for people who can build those niche use cases themselves like how do you differentiate between those two things like are we as the dev fund recipients supposed to build this actively or should we be focused more on enabling local communities to build them themselves like what's your overall perspective there mm-hmm. um I don't think that there has been any grant funding for use case specific client applications at this point. I could be wrong because I don't follow that like a super granular level, but I don't Mm -hmm. think that that's happened to this point. Um, I I assume we're referring to abortion funding since that's what got everybody up in arms over the last year. I would say that's that's probably the biggest one. Um, There was some fallout potential use cases because of tornado cash, but I think that those oh, aren't right. really yeah, actually yeah. applicable in practice. Um, they're like, can we use Zcash as a pass through like we use tornado cash, which I don't think is a great idea. Right. Um, so for example, I think abortion payments is probably the biggest, the biggest. Yeah. Thing. 
Yeah, I mean, and that became a hot button issue because it's it's not a niche issue. Like one in four women in the United States by the time they're 45 will have an abortion. So it's yep. a cross party. It's a family issue. And that's mm -hmm. why people were talking about it. And I think it might be one of those times or the first time where people who consider themselves to be very like, oh, I don't need privacy because I don't do anything wrong suddenly said, wait what's wrong can change. And I'm a good person. I'm not a criminal. What's happening? Um, and had this kind of like cognitive dissonance. Mm -hmm. um, so that ha it was definitely an opportunity. And I'm glad that we are leaning into that conversation. Uh, again, I think censorship resistant protocols, um, applications by people who believe in things. Um, I believe that there are more humans who will, obviously I'm a supporter of abortion funding personally. Mm -hmm. Um, but, uh, I believe there are more people who will build websites where you can, um, anonymously donate to abortion funds. than there are people who will, will attempt to build assassination markets. And we see that in practice time and time again, everybody likes to go through all the thought experiments, but in practice, most people want to fund humanitarian aid. They want to make sure that journalists are safe and funded. Mm -hmm. They want to fund freedom of the press. Um, and people don't have to agree with me to, uh, you know, fund what they believe. The point is that you should have the agency to create um, a, a way to facilitate what you believe in and that that should not be preventable um, by anything at the, the protocol level. So I don't think we have I object to the word morality. Um, in the first okay. place, um, I was kind of brought up with this idea that morality is what you do when you think somebody is watching, but ethics are what you do when no one is. Okay. Um, and so I think it's more about a sense of ethics and integrity. Um, and the, the ethical obligation that we have is to maintain a system that allows for, um, agency and choice and consent, um, it does not require us to, to attempt to prevent undesired outcomes because that is uh, a qualitative judgment. Mm -hmm. And in, um, you know, there's different geographies around the world with completely different uh, legal frameworks. Um, law enforcement relying on dragnet surveillance or golden key backdoored cryptography is lazy, uh, malicious or ignorant or possibly all three. Um, but we need to fight against that uh, to in order to support the cases that do matter. Okay, I, I actually have two follow ups, um, one from earlier and one from the from, one from the last point you just made. I'll, I'll go to the earlier one here. Do you think like, with regards to I think abortion, um, funding abortion payments or creating a system, let's say Zcash becomes more easily usable with like the next five years, like the usability aspect, the user interface is very easy. And it, it's just as easy as downloading a wallet and you're, you're, you have network level privacy via something like NIM and you feel more secure using Zcash to fund an abortion payment where it's illegal. Okay. That, let's say that's the use case here. Do you think that the current funding model within Zcash would restrict development in those areas because you have two institutions, um, you have three recipients of the dev fund. Two of those are based in the US and then one, the third one rolls up to one of those organizations. Do you think mm -hmm. that having two US-based organizations where this is a state level um, like decision uh, on the state, um, the state, the elected official in the state to make this decision on abortion, let's say the institutions based in the US, they're in jurisdictions where that is illegal and they can't facilitate that development and they can't grant funding by a ZCG to facilitate that development. 
do you think the, the dev fund model would fail in this area of allowing people to develop those types of applications that enable that access to financial systems? First of all, I don't think that the grants committee or the dev, dev fund or whatever should be in the business of funding um, a, a specific uh, application that enables something like abortion funding. Okay. I wouldn't vote. I wouldn't vote for that. Um, because it, it, yeah, like you said, it wades into these political like judgment areas that I think are beyond the scope of what we should be doing. Okay. Um, because if you do it for one, then you have to do it for another, right? Like mm -hmm. freedom of speech is not freedom of consequences. And I have the ability or I've made the choice to come out and say like how I feel about a particular issue. And there are consequences to that besides people like making crappy memes about me on the internet. Um, you know, they're, you know, I could have just said nothing and like funded things privately. That's what we're here to support. Um, so I, I guess object a little bit to the premise of the question, but you raise a good point. And the point mm -hmm. is about uh, regulatory capture and uh, risk allocation and diversification. Yep. Um, so yes, I agree that having all our eggs in the basket of the U.S. regulatory system is a risk. Um, I think it is important, uh, I won't speak to, you know, ECC and bootstrap and their whole structure because it's like a whole, it's its own bailiwick. Um, mm -hmm. But the Zcash Foundation elected to be a U.S.-based 501c3 uh, for specific reasons um, around transparency, uh, compliance reporting. It gives us a little bit of a high ground when we do engage in these conversations um, publicly about, you know, it mitigates some of the concern that we're some like, you know, weird fly-by-night like Swiss foundation or something. I think the lights just went off in my office, but you can still see me. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, however, I, and, and I should also point out that because we are a 501c3, we are disallowed from engaging in lobbying activities, which are not disallowed by something like a 501c6, um, yep. which something like, you know, I previously worked with like the Enterprise Ethereum Foundation. They were a 501c6. Um, so, this is something that we talk about actively. Um, the ability to diversify risk across geographic boundaries, uh, not just to prevent regulatory capture, but also just as a, a hedge against, you know, banking rules changing or what have you, is something that we are discussing and on top of. Um, this is very different from the idea of like needing to spin up uh, completely different organizations based all over the world that complicate the overall governance structure um, mm -hmm. just to get geographical diversification. Mm -hmm. Okay. And do you think that by creating more geographical diversification, you enable, you know, not only different perspectives from like a leadership point of view, people in different geographies will have, you know, different perspectives on that. You're also de-risking, you know, the regulatory risk, but do you think also that you'll be able to extend efforts into different geos where more niche key, not even like, I, I don't, you mentioned earlier that niche is the wrong word, I think here, I think just use cases for different parts of the world and different communities. Do you feel like potentially broadening out the organizations that are full-time on Zcash to not only let's say like Switzerland, for example, like broadening out into you know other parts of the world, do you think that is a future that is necessary for these types of conversations to be more active? Like we need to you know have the ability for this protocol to stretch and provide different use cases all across, you know, different geos. Like, do you think that's like a future state that we're going to have to like shoot for within the next 10 years? Um, 
I think having global communities who feel like they have skin in the game when it comes to both Zcash and just wider financial privacy initiatives uh, is awesome. It's definitely something that we um, care about, and we have funded uh, some additional like community meetups. Um, so not an official Zcon, for example, but like a smaller meetup. I think it was just in Brazil, but I could be wrong yep. on that. But I think it was yep. Brazil. Okay, Happen. great. Yeah, <laughs> in Brazil. Yep. All right. Um, uh, Facilitating that, again, is different than widening and complicating like the governance structure when it comes to all of these sticky issues like trademark voting things or mm -hmm. what is an open source license for a specific piece of software. So I know that those are complex issues um, where I don't want to misspeak in some way where, again, I'm like talking for myself and not the board at this point or the foundation, um, where what I'm saying is, yes, we want to have groups all over the world that are active participants, active contributors, um, and uh, recipients both of funds, capital, resources, um, and everything else that we have to offer um, as much as possible. Yeah. That doesn't necessarily mean spinning up a bunch of sanctioned or unsanctioned organizations all over the place that then we have to also explain back to our kind of U.S. overlords uh, that yeah. muddy the waters and make it more complicated for us to um, prove that we're doing things like transparently and as we initially agreed. Yeah. And then I think building off building off that point, and then I think just kind of a recurring theme in our conversation, I just want to, of what we've just spoken about, the understanding that I'm getting is that make it easier and facilitate the development of applications. Don't necessarily fund them for specific use cases or political ideologies, make it easier to facil facilitate development and make it easier for these developers to build tools that become easy to use in the hands of the general public. Because kind of something I'm also thinking about is that there are a lot of independent of political leanings or political ideology. I think everyone in the world can recognize throughout the world, there are hierarchies in, in terms of class, income, um, status, access. So within a hierarchy, there's obviously people who are more marginalized and not able to have the same amount of access to financial systems or infrastructure, et cetera. Um, you mentioned earlier, money is a great way to, you know, be able to attain certain things. And I completely agree with that. Do you think like that facil facilitation of development and enabling independent developers and different, you know, people across the world, do you think that, and then is a way that we can close that gap? Like there, cause there's a gap, you know, I think economic freedom, or I, I like the way you, you put it here, economic agency, I think giving people that choice and using applications that could potentially close that gap is a really, really important thing that we should fight for. So kind of this recurring theme I'm hearing is that it really boils down to the facil fil facilitation of development and giving people the opportunity to build things. Is that a good way to kind of summarize the things we've just been talking about? Or is it more nuanced than that? Um, well, I think it's iterative and you you kind of have to have one step mature, which then cascades to the next step and the next step. So yes, initially we need kind of picks and shovels that you can put out into the community as initial developer tools. Mm -hmm. Then you get people who create more um, 
reusable libraries and frameworks and things that reduce the technical overhead. Um, then you have things like um, one of the projects that Clover was working on is a, uh, like a, a turnkey developer environment that can automatically connect to a testnet. It comes with all your SDKs and CLIs included already, right? So we like reduce your requirement to um, read a bunch of readmes, spend time figuring out how to sync nodes, like, um, okay. you know, do all that setup stuff. So now we're reducing the, the overhead. Um, so that brings more people into the fold, right? You can do more hackathons, et cetera. Next, you need to have things that are like more example apps, um, you know, modules that you can put together, make uh, connecting plumbing easier. Like what's the Zapier of these crypto applications? Um, and that allows people to um, take components and reuse them in new and creative ways to create something that's new and unexpected. Um, at this point, you start talking about adversarial interoperability, and the, now you've got all these applications mm -hmm. working where people are taking from one and like creating a healthy ecosystem of things, right? Which is good. Mm -hmm. yep. um, but now you come down to the usability of people uh, who are less, you know, we're moving. I guess, ultimately, I hate the idea of technical skills. People are technically skilled in different ways. And like someone who has a DevOps background or a sysadmin background is just going to be different than somebody who started, you know, is a crazy like JavaScript wizard, but they work in frameworks all the time, right? Yeah. Like what does full stack even mean anymore? Um, but eventually we get down to like, why don't people run their own nodes? Why don't people run their own applications? Why don't people self-host anymore? And um, it's, you know... The, the same failing that I think of the original kind of cypherpunks where they just said, we just have to teach everybody that privacy matters and then everyone will learn how to like run PGP. <laughs> like, like this was, this didn't work. So just telling everybody, oh, we'll use Tor. Like these are just, they're just fundamentally misguided recommendations. Um, so we need to make it so that people can run these applications and then modify them simply. Like this is why WordPress, like what is it, like 40% of, of the internet actually runs on WordPress, which like blows my mind. Um, but that's because it's, it's uh, a, you know, overall platform that is reliable, modular, has a whole bunch of plugins, and um, you can do almost anything with it. Uh, once it gets to that level, then that's when communities who are really on the outside um, will be able to like turnkey create something. Um, because it's really about reducing fear, right? Like people are too afraid to like get into this, especially when you tell them they're dealing with money and maybe it's like risky in different ways. Like they need to feel safe. So what we're creating or what we should be creating is ways for people to use tools that can be trusted and um, have reputation uh, for doing good things um, and that it's like easy to, to then translate those tools to do something that you want them to do. Create your own WordPress site. Like this is why GeoCities like was a big deal, right? Because people who had no idea how the internet worked could suddenly like throw up their favorite fan page. Um, and we won't have like ubiquitous adoption of anything until it gets to that level. And we are, yeah, we're years away from that because right now, I don't know if you've looked at a readme lately, but like it ain't that. Yeah, no. <laughs> and even for me, it's like a, for someone from a non-technical background and and not really having like day-to-day -day experience with these things, I do hear that from like a lot of people, how it's very difficult to navigate, you know, various like repos and try to understand like how you can integrate one application with another application to make X, X activity a lot easier, right? And it seems that in crypto specifically or cryptocurrency specifically that 
that is even a level more difficult because we also have this future and dream of like interoperable systems, which, you know, which, which, you know, can be very, you know, difficult to build. So, um, I, I would say, yeah, like I would say a few years away, agree with you from a high level, not that I have any experience, but what, from what I've heard, I would, I would, I would likely agree with that. Yeah. And people really conflate, um, usability with like, uh, user interface minimalist design and like these are not the same things uh so interesting uh like it like sure it's nice to have an application that looks nice but but usability like it's it's a cascading bucket that comes all the way from the 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 protocols that we're making now and what is exposed and how easy it is to build like api hooks and things into that to how easy it is to build multiple sdks for different user populations to how easy it is to um you know create modules and libraries to how many people care to to work on that project um and then ultimately for the people who create applications uh, it's up to us to um, be, help them be opinionated, to make opinionated choices about user privacy. Uh, the worst case that we end up in, uh, which we totally, I think, as a community have a history of doing, is, is wanting to make sure that absolutely everything is open and available for people to do because everybody should be able to turn on and off everything because freedom. Um, but most people don't change defaults. And uh, by not being opinionated about security and privacy design up front um, in a way that does potentially limit your user base, um, like, you know, if, if somebody's going to come at, I'm probably rambling at this point, but if somebody's no. going to come at you and say, whatever, I can't like compile this from source on like a different architecture in order to prove that it's, it, it has integrity, like that may not just be part of your user base for your application. And you need to accept that. So we can learn from applications like Signal, for example, um, that have been pretty opinionated over the years about exactly what threat models they are uh, designing for. They understand who their user personas are. They don't make privacy claims or security claims that are, are not are untrue or overreaching. Um, they provide technical documentation for people who want to really understand that stuff under the hood. But the application that they provide is very opinionated about a specific type of user who they do not expect to be like a wizard. Um, and I think that's worked out really well for them. And I hope that we get to a place where people can build those sorts of applications. Yeah, I think that's a really good point because, I mean, it's just the, it's the tyranny of the fall. I mean, I, I did a, a podcast with Taylor Horn, Hornby a few few weeks ago, and he mentioned this as well. Like people typically aren't going to change like their default settings on something. So you need to build the applications in a way that the privacy and security aspect of it is at the highest level. And if they want to default to something, if they want to change that to something else, they're, they're able to. Right. And I think Signal is a really good example. Like. Um, they have their target personas and they build applications that fit within the people that want to use it. Right. And like, for example, like my mom, I make her download signal and she hates it because her, her idea of privacy is that I have nothing to hide. And I know that's a narrative that like, I have to work with like my family on changing, but like at the same time, like that's not, my mom's not signals target, target market, right. They have a specific target market and they're going after that one person, like that, not, not that one market, but they're going after that persona of people. And they're creating a really, really good and useful application that's easy to use for that persona. So I, I think that's a really, really good way to put it from an application perspective as well. Um, I do want to shift gears because sure. there's something I wanted to talk to you specifically about. And again, our own personal opinions. And I don't even know if we necessarily disagree on this. And I'm probably going to misquote the conversation from August. So I want to apologize if I misquote the conversation. Oh, God, did I say something in August? 
No, yeah, no, it. it was this, it was an overall conversation okay. and there was a lot of pushback um, from different people and there's difference of opinions. I'm going to mix this question up a little bit, but I'm going to set the context for everyone listening. The context is that there was a town hall at ZCon where the board members of Bootstrap, which owns the electric coin company and board members of the Zcash Foundation had a conversation around various things. And one of the things that popped up was, are we, you know, building the technology for people who hold Zek the coin and how much power should we give that population? And then is it, or are we building, like we've been talking about earlier, are we building permissionless technologies that allow anybody to use them or build on top of them? And, you know, how should we, you know, move forward in building um, the Zcash protocol and building applications for Zek the currency itself? There was a difference in opinion. Some people were saying that the voice and signal of the coin holders is very strong and we should build the applications tailored. I would say to them, I don't want to put words in their mouth. Um, again, might be misquoting and that we should have things in place like weighted coin voting and, you know, people who own technically the most amount of Zek coins can vote in this, you know, vote in selection and can decide the future of the protocol. Or you could have one-to-one -one if you're a Zek holder, you get one vote type voting. And then you had another you know, group of people that were saying, well, that's not a good idea because then you can create this system where a small group of people can eventually like control the future of the protocol. That was the context of that conversation. And I want to lead it. And I want to ask you your overall thoughts, not specifically to Zcash. We can, we can go that way, obviously, because that's what we're both affiliated with, but the overall crypto markets seem to have this idea of decentralized governance, but it ends up failing because of things like coin voting and allocations to VCs. How, how do you kind of feel that crypt, the cryptocurrency market, do you feel like it's been exploited by cap, capital markets or hypercapitalization? What's the balance that we need to strike? How do we ensure that people who hold the currency have a voice? Like what's your overall like opinion, not just specific to Zcash, but like the broader markets within this regard? Hmm. Yeah. Well, I have probably many thoughts again, personally <laughs> on this. Yeah. Um, and I haven't, I know there's a lot going on with the, the specific to Zcash conversation, which I actually kind of try to stay out of the forums, not only just cause I'm also busy running another company, but, um, it also, I feel like it just get, it's too easy to get like sucked in, um, to specific viewpoints that give me kind of blinders. Um, yeah. I'm not a fan of plutocracy in general. And I think that, uh, if the thing we're supposed to be decentralizing is power, um, you know, just relying on, on coin voting in any ecosystem or, or token voting or whatever it is that you, you want to call it. Um, I think it is an easy and lazy, um, governance mechanism. I think it's a great, uh, signal indicator. I love the idea of collecting um, credible signals from as many different constituencies as possible. And uh, coin holders is one that's pretty easy to measure um, because we can measure it based on the coins. Now, that said, it, you know, we're, it's, unless we start doing uh, human registration of it, you, we have no idea who's actually behind various votes. And that's, that's part of the system by design, right? So mm -hmm. um, sock puppetry and, and civil attacks and all these other things, like this is still part of the system. This is why we should not be implementing one human to one vote democracy in these sorts of, specifically the sorts of blockchain systems that we're talking about. Like it's just uh, fundamentally a non-starter. Yep. Um, so 
this is a somewhat different question from what should the overall governance mechanism of our community be and how important is price to or price support to the choices that we make. Um, I think, first of all, that it's good that uh, perhaps the foundation has a somewhat different perspective than Bootstrap or ECC, because if we believe the same things, then what's the point of having two organizations? Um, we're supposed to uh, intentionally uh, have a, a somewhat more broad mandate. Um, that's by design. And it's um, not an, exactly a system of checks and balances, but it, it does help us um, be more thoughtful and considerate about what are we doing here without just having a single bunch of groupthink. Um, I personally have always been in the camp that it's more about uh, general financial privacy for the public good than any specific currency. I said that initially before I was, you know, in my initial appeal to the community or whenever I was kind of voted for ages ago. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that I, I like to hold on to that philosophically because it kind of feels to me a little bit like the argument of, you know, do you support the party or the constitution? And I am, you can never be guaranteed that the party won't change and drift away from what you actually believe in. And so if you are trying to hold the constitution as your North star, then you might have to realign at some point. If you are in support of the party at all costs forever, you might find yourself supporting things you didn't really mean to. And um, so it is always possible that something happens to Zcash that I just would not support. Um, and I, I mean, I don't think it's going to happen, but who knows, right? So I am reticent to make comments that say it's about Zek against all other things because I didn't come here because of like Zek or Zcash or one specific type of cryptography. I came here because it's a, a community that is intellectual with integrity that has um, both good technology and uh, good intent. And that's what we should be supporting. So I like the idea of the foundation having a mandate for a wider um, public good, because it's allowed us to say work with the with Tor and uh, fund them to do things. It allows us to dedicate funding to um, additional cryptographic research that gets presented at like Usenix and other places, which then kind of feedback the larger uh, cryptographic community and information security community. And those things have knock-on effects to growing both our developer community, but our academic community and lots of other things. So the payback is huge and it might be non-tangible in its might, maybe isn't price support, but it's like the longevity of our intellectual capital and our community. And so I think that those things are very important to support so so like do you think at times then we can just by the influx of like capital into the crypto markets do you think that you know the prices in a lot of ways have been manipulated to give people a false sense of expectation that like because let, let, let's look at zcash for example like zcash's price performance over the last i don't know five six years has not equaled the same price performance as something of like ethereum like that that's you know how it's happened but the technology of Zcash has extended and is being being you know used in a variety of different applications on Ethereum. It's being used on it's it's inspired applications in Cosmos. There's been research from the Human Rights Foundation about Z, validity rollups using potentially using the Halo proving system because trustless trustlessness is a very big thing in the Bitcoin community. Like these things are like Zcash has built things that are industry renowned and being applied in very very you know 
infrastructurally important applications across many different blockchain ecosystems. Do you think because of the influx of capital in, in to some of the markets, let's look at Solana, for example. And by the way, Solana, great developer community, lots of interesting things they're doing there. But there was a little bit of price manipulation from FTX and a bunch of different you know, venture capital firms that that manipulated the price to a certain point. And it's after working FTX, out super well for them now, and, right? Yeah. And after FTX <laughs> blew up, it, it, it went down. And obviously, it's like, like when Ethereum went from 48 to 900, it popped up another 200% from that fallout. But if you bought Solana at 230, you've lost all your money, right? So like, do you think that those market manipulations could... Do you think Zcash is in a better place because it might have not experienced that so far? Like it, it's had ups and downs, but it's had a pretty steady, steady pace of development. And people say it's too slow, but I don't necessarily agree with that. I think it's producing a lot of cool technology and it's kind of stayed away from a lot of the market manipulation that's taken place over the last couple of bull markets. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a blessing and a curse. Um, I am glad to not be involved with, uh, I, I've managed to completely avoid a whole bunch of scammy things. And I guess that's just mm -hmm. because I, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I know that everybody thought I was, I've supported a variety of these like blockchain things, but I really hope that people at some point put together a clip reel of me saying, you don't need a blockchain for that, like 50 million times for years. Um, I mean, that's, yes, it's why I enjoy working, uh, with Zcash. Cause like I said, it still has great technology and I think it has a, a long life. Um, it's, painful to watch it be anemic, you know, when you believe in something, but I've been around open source for a long time and maybe people aren't used to, um, how painful it is to work in open source, <laughs> you know, to create things that you think matter and then watch other people either use them to make money or to, um, you know, take them and not contribute back. Um, or to be like a lone person supporting a project that is used by multi-billion dollar corporations that they rely on. You know, this is nothing new. And it's something that we are plagued with um, because of the novel nature of the work. And I don't think that any of the um, developers working on that were, you know, unaware of the pain of how it works. This is why some of the licensing concerns and conversations are happening. You know, open source writ large is trying to figure out how to handle this, um, not just from a how do we like pay developers standpoint, but how do we prevent, you know, AWS from just putting your stuff in their marketplace and charging for it. And this is why you get AGPL and other new licenses. Like it's an ongoing battle uh, that is the bifurcation of uh, what constitutes a community commons and the value created by a collective and what happens when, um, you know, capitalists show up. <laughs> so uh, venture capital is doing what venture capital does. They're capitalizing. That's, that's what they do. Um, we shouldn't really expect them to do anything different than that. Uh, it's a bit of a, a, you know, it's not really, a, a, I guess I was going to say it's a bit of a, a deal with the devil. I don't know. I guess that's protocol specific, but it's more like, you know, there's this is an open system and anyone could participate um because of that people who have money and time showed up you know this is this is what we got and and to say that it's probably it's here to in my opinion it's here to stay right like it's the system that that has seen you know an influx of like you know massive capital and different you know opportunities to expand the technologies into different aspects of of everyday life and, and, you know, a lot of different use cases are being kind of talked about 
And I don't know if I'm particularly personally interested in those use cases, but that doesn't mean um, that they're not viable or they shouldn't be created or they shouldn't, the technology shouldn't be built. I think it's, it's striking a balance, right? I think people are, are really struggling um, to maybe strike a balance between, well, if, if Zcash has built all this amazing technology and is, you know, Orchard specifically is like this, it's, it's a very revolutionary payment protocol that no one's ever been able to do before. And they feel that potentially, well, wow, the price didn't go up because of Orchard, you know, going live um, after NU5. They look at that as, well, the broader market doesn't care about privacy or doesn't care about these things. And I don't know if that's necessarily true. I just think like there's a lot of different considerations, right? It's like funding models. It's, um, you know, like it's like pricing, like price, if you're building a user specific application, you might have a pricing model that, that, that enables that, that token that's sponsoring, like that's empowering the application to go up. I don't like, I don't really know how all of the, a lot of these things work, but for me, it seems like it's a very complicated system. And it's just about trying to strike that balance between all of it. Or is it, should we go completely to the sides of like public goods funding and really reject the notion that we should hyper-capitalize an entire system? I don't know the answer to that. So I'm kind of curious in your thoughts there. I know that's a, a sidebar, but I'm like interested in your thoughts there. Um, I think that investors and traders and people who are seeking returns care about returns. Um, unless they have some sort of uh, like sustainability mandate or some other kind of specialized fund, no, they don't care about fundamentally providing privacy to people. They are looking at what is likely to go up. That's what they do. Mm -hmm. um, there's really little more to it. I think that uh, you know, 90% of, of startups uh, and things that venture capitalists invest in go to zero. Um, they expect one thing to return a fund. I don't know why people thought that this sector should somehow be different. Um, so yes, there, there's a huge influx of capital. Um, it hasn't been great from a, a public relations standpoint and from a like frenzied, you know, bubbly looking standpoint, but it has been great from an academic funding standpoint. I mean, people's work is getting money that, you know, 20 years ago, like nobody would have been like throwing mm -hmm. money at uh, people doing research on some of these like decentralized and distributed kind of advances. And like, that's really cool to see. Um, you know, I think that there is a corollary around um, pri distributed uh, privacy um, how would I say? I mean, stuff like federated learning, right? Like mm -hmm. doing um, like edge privacy at the edge of devices, um, doing machine learning in privacy preserving ways. All of these things are going to both benefit from the research that's happening right now. And we have doors opening to be doing more, um, uh, more work. We have the ears of people who have money to fund that sort of stuff. Now, whether or not they think it's going to deliver the returns enough that they're going to sink more money into it when it was a lot easier to just say, Hey, hit me with an airdrop. And there's like literally no documentation and like paperwork compared to like what an equity deal normally looks like. Um, I don't know. I mean, I'm sure a lot that most people are spooked right now, but it doesn't, it doesn't matter uh, because the, you know, the genie of funding is out of the bottle. So there's a lot of teams right now that have money. Uh, they get to choose what they do with it. And I hope that, you know, we've seen what's happening with open AI um, and, uh, you know, chat GPT, et cetera. These things are terrifying <laughs> for a whole yeah, bunch of reasons. Scary. Yeah, very scary. Um, uh, and I really hope that uh, we get some um, sane, like, 
privacy preserving or privacy conscious even um, ways to build models uh, for the similar types of systems that are in any way competitive because otherwise we're in for yet another sort of step on the technical dystopia. Wow, I just trailed off into my own disassociative depression. Sorry, go ahead. No, I, yeah, I totally agree. <laughs> I, I'm there with you. I, it's kind of, it, my family hates it when I come home for the holidays because they're like, how's work going or how's this going? And I'm, I go <laughs> directly to that place. And I'm like, it's, it's, it's going great, but here's these host of things that could potentially happen if it goes in X direction. And they're always like, just looking at me like I'm crazy. But nonetheless, I guess to kind of, I think this conversation was, was for me, like, really eye-opening in a lot of areas. I think kind of clarifying the way that maybe someone like, I'm going to, I'm going to kind of paint myself in a picture here, but someone who's not very technical, um, very much interested in like Zcash from an ideolo ideological perspective. I think it's interesting because I think decentralization is interesting. I think funding people like um, dissidents, political dissidents is a very cool thing. And I, like I, I gear towards it from an ideological perspective, not necessarily from a technological perspective. And as I've worked at ECC, I've been able to appreciate the technology more and more. But I think this conversation for me personally, and I hope others that listen to this feel the same way, has really solidified a lot of the thinking in areas that we could focus on potentially. Um, and I think that's been a really, really cool thing for me to personally listen to here. I think kind of to close all of this, you know, we've talked about why decentralization, public goods, uh, capital capital markets influxing into into cryptocurrencies? Like, you know, what's what's your hope for Zcash? Like, what is in in thirty years when we're all kind of looking back at the time we spent working on this thing and working on this protocol? Like, what is your hope in that position that you can kind of look back on? What's what's your hope there? Uh, I mean, I hope it survives uh, first of all. Yep. Um, which, you know, it's, it's kind of unstoppable. So as long as it has utility and, and there are people on the network, I'm sure it will. But um, I hope that it does not um, become captured by any specific entity, regulator, interest group, or, you know, um, organization. Um, I hope that it, it remains kind of open and a place, um, like I said, of like intellectual leadership and uh, integrity in, in the choices that are made. Um, I hope that we don't get, you know, product market fit in one specific area and like double down on everything so hard that we like forget about the wider use cases and the, the rest of the world. Um, but at the same time, I hope that we manage to uh, maybe do a little better at focus over the next couple of years of facilitating some of these early uh, use cases that aren't just about trying to make everybody, you know, buy coffee with Zcash. Like that isn't, <laughs> it's not the first order use case. Like if we go back to the signal analogy, like we can be pickier about the initial use cases um, to kind of grow the footprint. So my hope is that the number of people that are aware of and care about um, not just Zcash, but um, privacy, financial and otherwise continues to grow and that we are able to re recruit and inspire people from a bunch of different backgrounds that bring different skill sets in um, and that we manage to stay out of the like 
fracas on the ground of us versus them, who's better, like, you know, uh, crypto war bullshit, um, and can keep our eye on uh, what we should really be doing here, which once again is uh, empowering people to build the things that they need and um, decentralizing power. That's a really good answer. I really appreciate that. And I, I, I said to close on that one, but I always ask before, before we, you know, finish the conversation, was there anything that you wanted me to ask you that I didn't ask you? Oh gosh. Um, I don't think so. I mean, I feel like we, we covered a, a whole lot of things. So, um, yeah. I, I, I think, I think you got them all. <laughs> awesome. Great. And I, again, really appreciate that answer that you just put there because I think there's a lot of things that we can take from that answer and, and really just ponder on over the next, I think year is going to be really crucial for Zcash as we, you know, um, kind of establish more of a baseline for, for the wallet performance and things of that nature. And we can kind of go back to discussing the future of the protocol and, and diving into more research areas. I really think we keep a lot of those points at heart because I would agree that there's a lot of risks associated with, with fast paced development and trying to keep up with the rest or rest of the broader markets. And, and some of those risks, meaning, you know, neglecting certain use cases that are really worthwhile in building. So I really appreciate that answer. Um, Amber, thank you so much for the conversation today. And I really enjoyed it. And yeah, thank you so much. And thank you. Same. Yeah.